Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Ingrid Newkirk, president and co-founder of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Founded in 1980, PETA's motto is animals are not ours to experiment on, eat, wear, use for entertainment, or abuse in any other way. Ingrid is currently on a speaking tour with a unique and thought-provoking talk, We Are All Animals. Welcome to the show, Ingrid. Thanks, Laurie. Ingrid, what are your main messages during this speaking tour? Human beings are not gods, and all the other living beings are not trash, that we're all in this together, and that every living being feels, has pain if you hurt them, wants to be free, Uh, If you think of a mother cow, she, for example, is never allowed to be a mother because her calf is taken away from her shortly after uh, she gives birth so that we can steal the milk that was meant for that little one. And at the end of her life, we kick and prod her down a ramp to the slaughterhouse so she can be made into cheap pie meat and so on. So this is not how I think if we believe ourselves to be kind people and respectful people, and that we have learned who animals are, not what, but who, that we wish to behave if we think about it. The message is, let's respect all living beings and leave them alone, not exploit them, not harm them, not slaughter them needlessly, or do anything that we wouldn't wish anyone to do to us. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Very well stated. Ingrid, a big story recently was California Proposition 12, which passed and will marginally improve living conditions for certain farmed animals in the state. Why did PETA oppose passage of this proposition? Consumers today are being grossly misled. The fact that consumers want to know that animals are not being abused is very much on retailers' and producers' minds. They know they can't sell something if people think it's cruel. So if you go to the supermarket, you'll see all these eggs, cartons, labeled organic, free-range, pasture-ranged, and so on, um, humane certified. And what that means is, I liked your word marginally, it means that... They are, if anything, and I'm not exaggerating, if anything, they are marginally less cruel. But if you go to an egg farm today, you'll find chickens, thousands upon thousands of them, crammed into a shed. The lights are usually left on so as to accelerate their laying cycle. They have no peace, no darkness, no nesting areas where they can um, really relax. They have to fight other hens for them. They've lost their pecking order. And those hens in those sheds usually have about the same amount of space, which is one square foot, one miserable square foot per hen, as the new Prop 12 will eventually require some years from now. But what it does is lull people into thinking, oh, all right, well, eggs must be humane now, or they will be, and so I can carry on eating them. And I think if you saw the miserable life 
of a chicken. And admittedly, I mean, most of us don't have chickens in our homes. We have dogs and cats, and we get to know them. But people who do take in a chicken, maybe a sanctuary or something like that, and get to know them, know that these are smart little individuals with um, interests, with likes and dislikes, who certainly are under extreme distressful conditions on these egg farms, Prop 12 or no Prop 12. And nowadays, we have egg replacers. You don't need eggs and everything. You know, you can use something else. One of PETA's new campaigns has to do with language and specifically encouraging people to use more humane idioms and phrases having to do with animals. For instance, instead of killing two birds with one stone, people are encouraged to use feeding two birds with one scone, and beating a dead horse becomes feeding a fed horse. We have a special interest in this, Ingrid, and have covered this topic on a previous show, and personally, I think it's a great idea to put these phrases out there. What do you hope to achieve with a campaign like this? Awareness. Things um, are said casually without people thinking about them. And, I mean, what an awful thing to say is there's more than one way to skin a cat. Right. I mean, you just think, if you stop and think about it, that's not really something you want to be talking about. It's, um, and if we look back through history, of course, uh, we see in the women's movement and civil rights and um, disability rights that there were terrible, disrespectful, horrible uh, expressions that were casually used in the past that no one would dream of using today. But you have to raise the issue to get people to think, oh, that used to be acceptable. I don't think it is anymore because we're becoming aware of who animals are. And we learn new things about animals' abilities and talents and interests uh, every single day. You just open the paper or, or just Google something or look at the news, and there you have a fascinating new fact that you learn about how animals think, uh, how loving they are to their families, how they defend their young, um, how they can circumnavigate the globe, how elephants can hear underground for miles with rumbling sounds that we can't even detect without instrumentation. You just learn all these things, and you think, the time has come to no longer use these awful expressions. In the past couple of years, the world is experiencing an explosion of vegan awareness. There are so many new vegan foods. There are vegan restaurants popping up everywhere. And more and more research points to the strong health benefits of plant-based diets. How important is the message of veganism in the PETA culture? Oh, it's, it's integral, and it has been since our founding in 1980, is that our motto, as you mentioned, is animals are not ours to eat. And they're not ours to wear either or to experiment on. They're, we see them the way Henry Salt or Jeremy Bentham saw them, the old philosophers, as not underlings, not lesser human beings, but other nations that are just caught with us in the web of life and time is that they're here on earth as we are 
and they have other cultures. They communicate with each other in various ways that we often don't understand, and sometimes we learn something new about animal communication, and we're astounded, like a tree frog being able to send drumming signals a long way away, and another frog understands it. Um, you know, all these things we are learning, um, it just brings us to a new point in, in life, and one of those things is we don't need to eat animals. It comes back to bite us, if you will, with heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, or high blood pressure. And it's environmentally devastating to turn all this land over to the cultivation of cattle and chickens and so on. We are destroying our waterways uh, by cattle farming and uh, we just need to get away from it for cruelty reasons, environmental reasons, and health reasons. An important legal case we followed carefully was the monkey selfie lawsuit in which PETA Foundation lawyers argued that a macaque monkey should be able to own the copyright of his own image, which he took with the camera. Ultimately, a higher court ruled against PETA, and the Non-Human Rights Project strongly criticized your legal strategy. Ingrid, looking back, do you have any regrets about the whole monkey selfie effort? Oh, gosh, no. It was really a great case. Um, You know, one of our top lawyers here says in civil rights cases, the, uh, the thought is you lose, you lose, you lose and then one day you win. You have to throw down gravel before you pave the road. And in fact, a lot of good came out of the monkey selfie case. It's a fact that the copyright law says the person, or it doesn't say human being, but the one who took the photo owns the copyright. It's just that the court wasn't ready to actually rule that. And and that's always been the case with novel uh, litigation. However, The photographer whose camera was used by Naruto, the monkey in Indonesia, to snap these pictures. And let me say, he took a lot of pictures, and he would look at himself in the lens, and he would smile, and he would grimace, and each time he would press the shutter, he was fascinated with the process. But the photographer who owned the camera ended up, he's pledged um, 25% of all his future earnings from um, that sort of thing to go to the uh, population of monkeys and the habitat in Indonesia, uh, which is being decimated. And a National Geographic photographer has followed suit and also pledged a percentage back to the wildlife who he makes money from by photographing. And we've also been invited to Harvard to talk about this case. It's very much on legal scholars' minds and to the Copyright Association to talk to them, too, about the implications of this. So it's, um, it's, it's a great uh, gravel-putting-down case. Don't go away. More with Ingrid Newkirk right after the break. The holidays are here, and we want to remind you of a few things that you can do to keep your dogs and cats safe and happy this season. First, make sure the Christmas tree is secure and cannot fall over, and that tree ornaments, which can be eaten, are out of reach. And make sure the tree's water, which can get overgrown with bacteria, is covered so no one will drink it. Holiday plants like holly, mistletoe, and poinsettias are toxic to pets. And be especially careful with lilies, which can cause kidney failure in cats if ingested. 
Electrical wires should be covered or out of reach and use extra care with candles or avoid using them at all. Cats love to play with and eat tinsel, which can lead to intestinal problems and even surgery. So we suggest avoiding tinsel altogether. Don't let your pets eat chocolate, alcohol, table scraps, or anything sweetened with xylitol. And of course, don't give them or let them eat any bones, which can splinter and lodge in the throat or block the intestines. And remember, the holidays can be very stressful for your companion animals. So make sure your dogs and cats have a nice quiet place they can retreat to, away from your guests, so they can rest and sleep in peace. So happy holidays from everyone at Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's www.aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with co-founder of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk. Ingrid, a few years ago, we interviewed a PETA volunteer who was protesting the Canadian seal hunt by getting dressed up as a seal and making frequent appearances wherever Prime Minister Stephen Harper was scheduled. Now, many people would say or did say this is just another silly little PETA stunt. Also, and predictably, many commentators looked at this and ridiculed the whole effort. What is the point of conducting demonstrations such as this one? And does it bother you when you get ridiculed? And does PETA seek this kind of reaction? No, we'd much rather that everybody said, yes, there shouldn't be a Canadian seal slaughter every year. You're absolutely right, and we'll do everything we can to stop it. But the fact is that you have to get attention for these issues. And nowadays it's very hard. I mean, unless you declare war on someone or have sex with somebody in public, it's very hard to get attention for a social cause. So dressing up in a costume and following the prime minister around is one way. And as a result of that, we actually did get um, a couple of very popular singers to join in and um, appeal to the prime minister and to their fans. And the Canada Seal uh, slaughter, which is an abomination, has gradually sort of gone down and down and down because our campaigning, together with other groups campaigning, has made it impossible for Canada to sell those pelts almost anywhere in the world, the whole world. Yeah. You know, so, yes, those things are vital to, to, to bring attention. Ingrid, talk about the use of fur and the manufacturing of fur. Well, I, if anybody wishes to be nauseated, you can go to our website, peter.org, and look at the videos. And it's, uh, it's, it's really stunning that um, these animals are sometimes skinned alive. And when they aren't, they're electrocuted, which is quite painful, or they are suffocated, sometimes with their heads stuck in a jar. Or in the case of uh, coyotes and, and other animals, they may be caught in steel traps out in the cold and left there. But what we're seeing, of course, now, after years of campaigning, is that the whole public has turned against fur. And this year alone, major fashion houses, Gucci and um, 
Coras and um, Galliano and well, Donna Karen, all these people said, all right, we're not going to design or sell fur anymore. And that was, you know, shows that persistence pays and that ethics rises to the top if you uh, go on about it for enough. But there, is, there are fur farms, too, particularly in China and Korea, that are appalling. And you have to watch out that you're not actually being sold some little bit of trim that an animal needed to keep them warm and to stop them from being killed. Right. It's now on the Canada goose jacket or something. Ingrid, what are your thoughts on contemporary zoos and what should become of them? Well, we have a vigorous campaign against roadside zoos, for example, because they're the worst of the worst. I mean, some zoos are trying. For example, the Detroit Zoo has made, taken the decision that they really can't c- cater to or or cope with uh, providing proper living conditions for elephants. So when the elephants they have now die, that will be the end of that. But roadside zoos uh, are particularly bad. I don't believe animals belong in confinement. I mean, you know, in the old days, they used to put human beings, aboriginal peoples and so on, and tour them and put them behind bars so people could gawk at them. Uh, All animals want to be free. They want to choose their mates. They want to roam. They want to fly. They want to do what animals do. And so um, the roadside zoos are a focus because often you'll find a single bear uh, or just a small group of bears living on cement, and that's their whole life. And so we have so far rescued about 72, I think, and closed those facilities down. Wonderful. And that's where where we're going. Very good. Ingrid, something that has animal advocates around the world extremely distressed is the massive destruction of natural habitats, which seem to be an unstoppable process. I mean, it's downright depressing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I hate to say it, but I think it's too late to stop it because human greed is an extraordinary thing. And most people are not going to allow the lands that they own Uh, to be preserved so that other living beings can continue to make it their home. They're going to develop it. And as the human population expands and expands, uh, where is wildlife to go? If you fly over the country, just the U.S., you'll look down and see tiny patches here and there of green. It's not habitat anymore. These are little isolated clumps where animals try to eke out an existence. And through them come hikers and bikers and hunters. And there really is, a, it, it's disaster for the animals, absolute disaster. Does PETA have a policy on breaking the law as part of animal advocacy, such as trespassing to take videos or releasing laboratory or farmed animals? We don't do that. Um, we are, we're, we're a legal uh, organization, so we work within the law. Um, But I've often been asked, you know, if your dog was in a laboratory and someone went in and got her out, uh, would you turn them into the police? And I certainly wouldn't. I'd be so happy to get my dog out. Um, I think most people would agree with that. But I don't think that anyone who criticizes those who break the law in order to help animals, to save animals, um, if if you don't want to break the law and, and we don't, then there are ample other ways that you can work for animal liberation. 
including use your social media account, never right. dissect, speak right. to people who are wearing fur or wool or leather, you know, find out about the alternatives, show the videos. You know, there are so many things you can do, including how you spend your consumer dollars. So lots of legal ways to help animals. You bet. Ingrid, would you like to leave our listeners with any concluding thoughts? Oh, absolutely. Which is, please, be the kind of person that you would tell your children you are. Uh, For every cruel choice, there is a compassionate one. And sometimes we inadvertently make cruel ones because we don't look deeply. But if there is an animal involved in a photo op, an entertainment, um, if you're buying a product that says lanolin or placenta, doesn't have the cruelty-free logo, if you're going out to eat or cooking a meal, buying a pair of shoes, if there's an animal part of that, that animal didn't give that part willingly. And please choose something else. President and co-founder of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk, thank you very much. Thank you, Laurie. listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, that's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar, and thanks for listening. to welcome Mark Hawthorne. Just out is his new 10th anniversary edition of his classic book, Striking at the Roots, A Practical Guide to Animal Activism. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Let's start by going back in time. Uh, What motivated you to write the first edition, which is now more than a decade ago, and uh, why did you think now was the time to update it? Well, when I got involved in activism. I actually started off uh, as a vegan in 2001 and looked around and thought, boy, I would really like to do more to help animals. And I I looked around at the big national groups that had websites and got a little bit of information about how to be an activist, but a lot of it was, you know, hey, volunteer for us or, you know, come out and join our protest, Uh, which was fine, but I wanted to do a a little bit more than that. I wanted to do things in my local area. I I wanted to be more of a grassroots activist. And I really couldn't find uh, guidance. I I knew some people in the movement, and I asked them for advice. But a couple of years later, I was contacted by uh, my publisher, Changemakers, and they asked me if I would be interested in writing a book about animal rights. And after I thought about it for a while, I thought a book about how to be an activist would be a great idea. There really wasn't anything like that from what I could find in the animal rights movement. And so I wanted to put together something that would help anybody who wanted to you know, volunteer at a local shelter or needed guidance on writing a letter to the editor or 
you know, wanted to be involved in a protest, but didn't know how to go about doing it. So that was sort of the genesis of the first edition. And about five or six years after I had written uh, the first edition, I realized that a lot had changed. Social media had changed quite a bit. You know, Facebook was a huge force in the movement for activists to not only express their opinions, but to organize events and, and do other things. So I talked to changemakers and asked them, you know, would they be interested in me doing a 10th anniversary edition? Because I knew if I did it right, I really wanted to take my time. I wanted to go back and talk to a number of the activists that I spoke with. I interviewed for the first edition 120 activists from around the world, got their input on their best practices on, uh, on speaking up for animals. And when I did the new version, I went back. I talked to some of the same people. I also decided to remove some people because either their advice was uh, outdated or I found a, a better way of phrasing it. And I ended up talking to, in total now, about 140 activists from around the world. So uh, my publisher was behind it 100%. They thought it was a great idea, and I'm just really excited and really proud of the, the new edition. On the cover is the phrase, new tactics, new technology. Uh, what does that refer to? Well, we're talking here about uh, modern ways, in some cases, that activists can approach activism. Uh, one of the new technologies I discuss in the book is virtual reality, yeah. which is uh, basically the idea that you can put on a headset and be immersed into a world of exploitation that normally the public doesn't see. Uh, virtual reality headsets uh, allow people to see inside of a factory farm, inside of a slaughterhouse, and get an idea for what the animals experience. Now, you know, when I mention virtual reality, it doesn't sound like that's a grassroots activism because the big groups are using it. However, as the technology becomes more popular, just like any new technology, the price comes down, this type of technology is going to be available for um, just about anybody uh, at, a, at a much better price. So it's, a, it's just another way to let people know what's happening in the world of animals and um, get people a little bit more in touch with um, you know, their own sensibilities, their own level of compassion, and make them think you know, what's, what's happening out there. Otherwise, you know, they probably wouldn't be able to experience that type of thing. I was a little surprised to see how much ink you devoted to letter writing, like letters to the editor of newspapers. Why is that still an effective tool? I think part of the reason that I devoted so much time to using the written word in activism is that I love writing so much, and it was such an effective tool for me when I started off, and it still is. I've clearly I've written you know, four books now about this subject, uh, but also... When you write a letter to the editor, you are educating every reader of that publication about an issue. But more than that, because not every letter gets published, in fact, most letters to an editor don't get published, you are educating that editorial board. You're letting that newspaper or that magazine know that this is an important issue in the community. So it, just because your letter does not get published, don't be discouraged. And we're also talking this, uh, for the same, in the same matter about uh, op-eds or you know, feature stories that you might want to write, which I also cover in the book. So that's one of the great things about writing is that it, it's never wasted. And in fact, if you don't get something published, 
you can always go on to another publication and, and pitch the story to them. Oh, yes, that's very, very true. Okay. Let's go back to social media, which has become this incredibly powerful and pervasive thing. How important is uh, social media for animal activism now? Well, it's become hugely important, obviously. Uh, it's When I first uh, wrote Striking Up the Roots 10 years ago, we had uh, a few tools out there. MySpace was big, and uh, regrettably, that was what I spent most of my time writing about in that edition. But now we're using social media to... Uh, organize events, we're using it to share information, we're using it to get support for other activists, and you know, we're using it to share documentaries. And those documentaries in the past few years have had an enormous impact, uh, I think, of Blackfish, uh, the movie, um, the, the 2013 documentary that came out about SeaWorld, and how it had such a huge impact on people in, in large part because of social media, because uh, people who had a lot of, you know, in, so-called influencers, people who had a lot of influence in the public uh, shared the, the documentary or they shared information about the documentary and encouraged other people to watch it. Right. That ultimately put pressure on SeaWorld to change a lot of their policies, including uh, the end of breeding orcas in captivity. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if one day we see SeaWorld completely change their uh, corporate culture and only offer things like rides and other amusements and not have animals in captivity at all. And this all goes back in many ways to social media. So when we're talking about things like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and other tools that we use online, you know, a lot of activists who have been in the movement for a while they kind of criticize it. They call it, uh, you know, slacktivism uh, because you're not really doing that much. But I disagree. I think it's a very powerful tool, and it's one that is a great entree for activists who aren't quite sure what their place is in the movement. You know, maybe they're not, they don't consider themselves to be a, an activist, or maybe they're not yet even vegan, but they want to express their concern about animals. Well, this is a great place to start. And having said that, I should warn people that there's also a lot of acrimony online. There's also a lot of negativity that you need to, to watch out for. So I advise activists not to spend too much time online. In fact, I would encourage everybody to disconnect from technology um, as often as possible because we don't want to get sucked into it. You know, we feel a high, an emotional high, when somebody likes or shares a post, and that becomes addictive. So we need to be very careful about that, too. So I, I, I want to uh, make sure that your listeners understand that as well. I think that's great advice. The growth of vegan food options has really exploded in the past few years with the new restaurants everywhere and so many new options at the market. How can activists ride the plant-based wave to more powerful activism for animals? Well, that's a great point. Um, you know, the companies that are really popular today that are coming out with new vegan products are not doing it for the, you know, 1% to 3% of the population that considers themselves to really be vegan. They're doing it for the, you know, 20 to 50 to maybe even 60% of the population that want to eat more plant-based foods. So we need to, first of all, be in touch with that. We need to understand that there's a growing population of people who are not considering themselves to be vegans. They're 
you know, considering themselves to be quote unquote reducitarians or another term is flexitarians. You know, they're people who are just they're trying to add more plant based foods to their diet. So it's become a lot more uh, acceptable for an activist to, you know, for example, bring vegan foods to Thanksgiving dinner. You know, if, if your listeners tomorrow are, are going to a Thanksgiving dinner and they want to uh, uh, make sure they have, you know, they're vegan, they want to make sure they have plenty to eat, a great way is to bring a vegan dish or a vegan dessert and make sure you bring the recipe because the people who had your, you know, fantastic cookies or cakes or pies or whatever dessert you make are, are, are going to want to try that. But also, if you're a student and you have a dining hall at your university or your, your campus, it's a lot more acceptable now to go in and ask them to carry more vegan options. And the same is true for the restaurants that you frequent uh, that might not have a lot of vegan options or might not have any vegan options. You know, they might need a little bit, the, the manager, the owner might need a little bit of education about what it means to be plant-based or what it means to offer a vegan uh, menu or have some items on the menu that are vegan. So it's a lot easier. And the book goes over, uh, it explains in depth how to do that. But it's very easy to go in there with kind of a checklist and talk to, you know, make an appointment with the manager and uh, ask them to offer some vegan options that you like. There's so many available now. And uh, I think it's a great way for activists to uh, find a, a great way to speak up for animals. The book is striking at the roots. Uh, we've just scratched the surface of it. Uh, Mark, I'm sure it will be a really useful book for so many people. Uh, it has a positive, inspiring tone, and it also contains many other useful resources that we did not touch upon. Uh, thanks for updating the book, and thanks for visiting with us. Thank you so much, Peter. I really appreciate it, and I hope everybody has a compassionate holiday. More with animals today after this break. most people, you have lots of plans, a financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of these animals get euthanized. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. AIanimals.org. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the platypus, and specifically about two intriguing features of this peculiar creature. The bill of the platypus, described as being smooth to touch, with the feel akin to suede, and is flexible and rubbery, is used to scoop up its meal, such as worms and shrimp, from the muddy floors of streams, ponds, and lakes. 
As the platypus lacks teeth, gravel is also taken in at the same time, so its grinding plates can pulverize the food into smaller digestible bites. But the bill may be even more interesting for the specialized sense organs it has. Thousands of microscopic electroreceptors detect moving prey by sensing electrical activity associated with their muscle contractions. The skin of the bill also contains numerous mechanoreceptors called push rods, which are thought to aid in the animal's ability to detect and judge the direction and distance of moving prey. There's still much to be learned about how these sensors work and interact in concert. Another noteworthy aspect of platypuses are the venomous spurs on the heel of each rear foot in males. They appear to be used to fend off rival males during courtship and mating. So as cute as these creatures are, mind their spurs, because the venom they can inject is nasty. It will cause immediate, extreme, and long-lasting pain, which curiously is impervious to the pain-relieving effects of morphine. Its constituents are still being figured out, but one chemical lowers blood pressure and another looks to be a neurotoxin. Consider yourself warned. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Former Vice President Joe Biden has a new addition to his family, an adopted German shepherd named Major. Did you hear about that, Peter? No, Major. Yep. From the Delaware Humane Association, he rescued it. According to the Delaware Humane Association, the German Shepherd was one of six puppies exposed to something toxic in their home, leading to the owner surrendering them after being unable to afford proper care for them. Biden heard the story and fostered Major before adopting him. And it ends up all six of the dogs found new homes, so it's a great story. Great story. It's a big freaking deal. (laughs) That's good. According to Live Science... 145 pilot whales were found stranded and dead on a remote beach in New Zealand. Nobody knows why. So a hiker discovered these stranded whales and reported it, but by the time authorities got there, nearly half were already dead, and the other half were in such bad shape that experts decided to euthanize them. 145 of them. Apparently, according to the experts, pilot whales are very social and travel in groups of 20 to 90 individuals, and it's not unusual for the large groups to strand together. But why this happened remains a mystery to scientists. According to the Department of Conservation, one hypothesis is that the whale's echolocation isn't as effective in shallow or near shore waters as it is in the steep areas. And because these guys like Other cetaceans use echolocation to find their prey, which include things like squid and octopus and small fish. It's possible that when the whales follow their prey closer to shore, the whales become disoriented and are unable to find their way back to sea before beaching themselves. And another theory postulates that the whale's social tendencies mean that when one whale washes ashore, others follow to help out only to tragically get stuck themselves. Or it could be a combination of factors that cause these animals to strand, but really the reasons are still unknown. Also, according to Live Science, last week there was a dead sperm whale that washed ashore on a beach in southern Indonesia. And what they found in its stomach was... guess. Guess. Plastic. Yes, exactly. 13 pounds Hmm. of plastic trash. The trash included more than 100 plastic cups, four plastic bottles, 25 plastic bags, two flip-flops, and hundreds of other pieces of plastic. 
A marine species conservation coordinator at WWF Indonesia told the Associated Press, although we have not been able to deduce the cause of death, the facts that we see are truly awful. Earlier this year, another dead sperm whale washed up on the coast of Spain, likely killed by the 65 pounds of plastic trash discovered in its gut. According to a 2015 study published in the journal Science, since 2010, Indonesia has ranked as the second highest plastic polluting country in the world after China. It produces more than 3 million tons of plastic waste per year. Indonesia's coordinating minister of maritime affairs told the AP that the dead sperm whale should inspire the country's government and its citizens to significantly reduce plastic use. The AP reported that he said the government is working to urge shops to discontinue use of plastic bags and for communities to educate students nationwide about the problem. The Indonesian government aims to reduce plastic use by 70 percent by 2025. Okay, Lori, what else you got there? Well, over the past several weeks, as we're walking our dogs, we're seeing more and more mushrooms or mushroom caps growing up from the grass. I remember on the show, one of my interviews with veterinarian Robert Reed, I think the topic was backyard hazards, and he mentioned a common underestimated danger to your pet, which is mushroom poisoning. According to the Texas A&M University College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, mushroom intoxication ranks near the top of the list of pet poisoning every year. And one mushroom called death cat mushrooms are the number one cause of fatal mushroom poisoning worldwide. Fatal. Hmm. So remember this, people. Allowing your dog to nibble on a mushroom on your walk can potentially kill him. And although this article goes into some of the characteristics of the death cat mushroom, including it omitting a fish-like odor when it decays, which is appealing and appetizing to dogs and cats and typically leads to their ingestion of it, the take-home message really is just keep your pets away from any mushroom, whether in your yard or on walks. But referring specifically to these Death cat mushrooms, what a name, right? Dr. Justin Hines, an assistant professor at the Texas A&M College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, states, We don't necessarily see a lot of cases that we can directly attribute to ingestion, but the development of clinical signs are usually delayed by 6 to 12 hours, Hines said. Initially, clinical signs are usually gastrointestinal in nature, resulting in vomiting and diarrhea, and blood may occasionally be noted in either. Hines added that these signs will typically resolve within 24 hours. However, it's important for owners to understand that this does not mean that their pet is in the clear. Unfortunately, after about 48 to 72 hours following resolution of these signs, the patient will develop liver and kidney failure, with liver failure being far more common, he said. Prognosis at this point is pretty guarded. But all mushrooms vary in toxicity, he says. Some cause self-limiting gastrointestinal distress, while others cause neurological effects such as tremors and seizures. A misidentification can lead to serious illness or death in your beloved pet. So he urges pet owners to contact their veterinarian immediately if they believe their pet has ingested any mushroom. Quote, I recommend keeping pets away from any mushroom in the yard or on walks. Better safe than sorry. So... 
Keep a close eye on your pet during walks, people, and remove any mushrooms that might be growing in your yard. And as always, contact your veterinarian immediately if you believe your pet has eaten anything suspicious. Scary story, Lori. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. <laughs>